Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. Well, this morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew as we recall the challenges that Jesus and his apostles faced in the early part of the first century. So great were the difficulties posed by the Hebrew people. Christ and his band of brothers left the geographical confines of Israel for a time in favor of more pagan lands. For the first time in his public ministry, he led the group northwest from Capernaum to Syrian-controlled Phoenicia, where he would minister among the Gentiles. We saw the mother of a demon-possessed child beg and plead at the feet of the Jewish Messiah for just the slightest crumb from his table. Then it was the Decapolis crowds who marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the blind seeing, and the cripple restored. And then last week we read about Christ's feeding of 4,000 Gentiles who hungered, thirsted and ultimately glorified the God of Israel. What a journey this has been, not only for the mixed multitude who had gathered, but also for the disciples themselves, who would one day bear the gospel burden for this very people. And that's what awaited the twelve out in their future. But as their Canaanite tour came to a close, it was time for them to return to the present. A present that lied very much back in the land of the Jews. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 15 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 39. Matthew chapter 15, verse 39. Sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? but cannot discern the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why you do discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God has given mankind is the ability to remember. In the miracle that is creation, God gave man a complex intelligence that utilizes the memory to recall facts, process prior events, and learn from things observed in the past. Truth is, everything that you know right now is drawn from your memory. And yet, when things in the past are overlooked, when they are dismissed or forgotten, we stand to miss out on what God has so graciously taught us over the years. And as we move into chapter 16 here, Jesus asks the Pharisees who were against him and the disciples who were following him to remember all that he had done over the course of his public ministry and come to the proper conclusion about his nature as the Christ. And as he asks them these pointed questions about the past, it forces us to give our own answer today. His interaction with the Pharisees begs the first of these questions. Why do we still seek after heavenly signs? We'll take a look back at verse 39. After feeding the 4,000 and sending them on their way, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan, something called Magdala, on the western shore of the Galilean Sea, back amongst the Hebrews. And not long after he arrived, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and Testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, the request made by these religious leaders to see a sign was indeed a test, a challenge, a demand for Jesus to prove himself as the Messiah. For the sake of the people, it was presented in a way that seemed respectful enough. But it was voiced with very questionable motives. Something Mark makes clear in the parallel passage. According to his retelling, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Well, friends, they weren't asking for a sign that hopes that one day they would believe in Jesus. They were asking for a sign so they would have one more reason not to. Well, yeah, I know the blind have received sight. The lame are walking. The lepers have been cleansed. I saw the deafened ears opened and the dead raised to life. But until you do this, that, and the other thing, I won't believe. That's how the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached Christ in Magadan. With critical spirits and hardened hearts, 
that wouldn't believe the messianic claims of Jesus, no matter how many miraculous signs God gave them. Suppose that's the other part of the Lord's frustration here. Not only that they asked with evil intentions in their heart, which surely they did, but also their wholesale inability to interpret the signs that they were already given. I mean, imagine for a moment that Jesus cast out demons, cured leprosy, made a lame man rise and walk. He gave speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind. He calmed the sea. He walked on water. He fed how many people with next to no food? John said of him, behold, here is the Lamb of God. And the voice from heaven broke through the clouds one day to declare, this is my son with whom I am pleased. And you're still waiting on a sign? How spiritually ignorant are you? I mean, you can read all other types of signs, Jesus says, when they're presented to you. Take a look at verse 2. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you determine there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times, that is, the arrival of the Christ? That's a pretty sad commentary for a bunch of men who were supposed to be very religiously learned despite all the evidence that they had in front of them, they refused to acknowledge the clear and obvious truth about their long-awaited Messiah. And yet, as tragic as it was for the scribes and Pharisees back in Jesus' day, I fear that many of us are still seeking a sign from heaven too. And skeptics search out these things because they don't trust the words of the Bible. Believers seek for them because they don't trust that the words of the Bible are enough. Whether it's gazing at the skies for the color of the moon, keeping track of Israel's political alliances, or reading books about someone who came to, went to heaven and came back to tell us about it. We are fascinated by these things. And I cannot for the life of me understand why. Is this not enough? I mean, I get why Pharaoh needed a sign. And I understand why the Baal worshippers could benefit from one. But now that Christ has been fully revealed to us, What more sign could we possibly need? We've all had those conversations with folks who likely have no real interest in the Lord, trying to justify their own unbelief, who don't believe the Scriptures and what it tells them. People say, well, once I see God do this in my life, then I'll believe. 
But that's not true. Oh, then you'll just want to test him again. It's a principle that's laid out in the conversation between Abraham and the rich man who died an unbeliever. The man said in Luke chapter 16, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, if someone would do something miraculous, something incredible, if somebody would just go and perform a sign, then they will repent. Abraham said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead right there in front of them. See, the rich man, Pharisees, you and I today, we don't need more signs. We need to start believing the ones that we've already been given. Several years ago, Herman Kahn and Garrett Scalera wrote an article. It's entitled, The Future of World Economic Development, Projections to the Year 2000 and Beyond. In it, they predicted that the future of religion would be filled with ecstatic experiences and spiritual sensationalism because, and I quote, As people's faith decreases, their reliance on signs will increase. Has that not already begun to take place even in the last 20 years? Jesus says in verse 4 that only an evil and adulterous generation seeks after these signs. And to them, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. You see, instead of performing a miracle for these Pharisees and Sadducees, right then and there, Jesus points them to the miracle that will provide all the validation and attestation that anyone in this world will ever need. He's speaking, of course, of his own death and resurrection. Still very much a future event when he first spoke these words to the Pharisees and Sadducees. But 2,000 years passed as we read the account today. That in the same way that God raised Jonah back to life after spending three days and three nights in the fish's belly, as we're told in Matthew 12, verse 40, God will raise the Son of Man back to life after being buried for three days in the earth. Now, we realize that Jonah's experience and that of Jesus are not a perfect parallel. But that's what makes it a sign. Not that the same thing is happening over again, but that something similar would take place that helps point us to another that is even bigger and better and more significant in the future. And in that way, 
Jonah's ordeal was a sign of Jesus. For on the third day, both of them stepped out of their tombs alive after being delivered from death by the hand and spirit of God Almighty. In 30 AD Jerusalem, that happened. And it's the only sign that you ever need go looking for. The death and resurrection of the Son of Man, Christ Jesus. Don't say, if God would just fix my marriage. If he would just give me that promotion. If God would just cure my child of that cancerous disease, then I would believe him. No, you wouldn't. If you don't believe the rugged cross and the empty tomb, you're not going to believe God for anything. Yeah? Why are we still seeking after a heavenly sign? And why do we still expose ourselves to corruption? I mean, that's the next question on Jesus' list, as we see in verses 5 and 6. After refusing the Pharisees their sign, Christ left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. As they head away from Magadan, the disciples suddenly realize that they don't have any bread with them anymore. What happened to the seven large baskets of leftovers? Well, imagine that's what Jesus was wondering himself, but nonetheless... He used their situation of want to warn them about the dangers of leaven. And Paul points out those dangers to us in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He asked them in chapter 5. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. And when they refer to leaven, both Jesus and Paul intend to give us a picture of something pure that's being tainted by a foreign substance. That foreign substance being wickedness, evil, immorality, and deceit. Now Paul says, put it out of the church. Jesus goes a little farther. He says, don't ever let it in in the first place. Not into your own heart, certainly not into the body of Christ. So he tells the disciples to beware of the sinful influence of the Pharisees' teaching, the Sadducees leading the alluring temptations of this secular world. It infects, it pollutes, and it spreads like rust on a car, like cancer in the body. And while we must certainly cut it out whenever it makes its appearance, the best way 
to guard against its destruction is to prevent it from ever gaining a foothold at all. I believe that's what Jesus is warning about here. His Peter, John, James, Judas. You better be mindful who you listen to. Be mindful what advice you take. Be mindful of what things you allow in your household. I have been accused at times of being a little too strict, conservative about this. Perhaps a little legalistic, some would say, in regard to the things that we watch, things that we read as a family. But you know, some things you can never unhear. Some things you can't unsee. And if we're going to guard our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus, as Scripture implores us to do any number of occasions, I think a whole lot more diligence is required, not less. Because false teaching doesn't need much to sow its seed. And... The things of this world can wreak havoc in the briefest of moments. So, knowing what we claim to know, believing what we profess to believe, why do we subject ourselves and our children to the leaven of this world? Yeah, I know that TV show is not wholesome, but it sure is funny. I know those clothes are really suggestive, but it's the latest fashion trend. Sure, that school setting is toxic, but what am I supposed to do? Is that the best that our sanctified minds and hearts can offer? Surely not. No, we have to to choose better. By the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, we have got to choose better for ourselves and for our families. Because that's what Jesus implores us in Matthew chapter 16. He says, don't let the leaven of the world corrupt you and those you care about. Because leaven is really, really hard to get rid of. Once it has been given the time it needs to rise. Are you there? Jesus wonders, why do we still seek after signs? Why do we still expose ourselves to corruption? And as we see in verses 7 through 10, why do we still worry about a lack of bread? Almost ignoring Jesus' warning about the leavening of their spirits, the disciples began to discuss this same thing among themselves again, saying, uh, he said that because we did not bring any bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? I mean, can you imagine this? The days after watching Jesus multiply seven loaves into 700, they begin to gripe and complain, wonder and worry that they do not have enough bread to fill their bellies. 
Really? How short is their memory? How little is their faith? To watch Christ work time and time again and still fixate on their wanting? Jesus is dumbfounded in whatever way that can be so. Jesus is dumbfounded by their failure to acknowledge his faithfulness to them in the past. He says in verse 9, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up afterward? And do you not remember the seven loaves of the 4,000 how many large baskets full you picked up there? If you remember the way I worked on those prior occasions, why are you fretting about a lack of food now? Evidently, they still did not get who this was in their midst. Not fully. Because if they did, they wouldn't have worried about such a thing as bread And we wouldn't concern ourselves with such trivial matters either. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Do not worry then, saying, what we will eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, disciples, leaders, followers of Christ, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Now, I am embarrassed to tell you how many times I have seen the faithful hand of God's provision only to fill my days with worry and concern about him doing it again. We need better memories, church. And we need a better trust. That the God who multiplied the loaves back then will provide for my needs today. Huh? In whatever way that Jesus can be at the end of himself, that's how we see him here. Done with the attacks of the Pharisees, appalled at the dullness of the disciples. And so he asks them in verse 11, now, the same question that he would probably ask many of us. How is it that you still do not understand? How is it you still do not understand what it is I'm talking about and the impact that it should have in your life? How is it that you still do not understand? Well, in part because you have forgotten the sign of Jonah. 
in part because you have forgotten the commands of Christ, in part because you have forgotten the provision of Yahweh Yireh. Perhaps that's why you don't fully understand yet who God is. Perhaps that's why you don't understand his word. Perhaps that's why you don't understand how to forsake the things of the world and follow after Christ. Perhaps you have a faulty memory. And until that gets fixed, friends, you will remain spiritually ignorant and little of faith just like those in Jesus' company here. That's why Scripture continually calls us to this place of remembrance. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember the way that the Lord has led you. Remember the words of God. Remember the plans of God. Remember His mighty deeds. For those who forget their God, wither before their time and find themselves a people without any hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the continual reminder that we find in Scripture of how great and awesome is our God. But Lord, we are a people prone to forget we get distracted by the things around us. We get consumed by our circumstance. And we forget who you are and what you have done. Lord, I pray that you would help us sanctify our minds, our hearts, and our memories. That we might look back on all your works and remember your faithfulness in the future. Thank you for times like this when we can open your word, we can relearn what we should already know. Continue to impress these truths upon our hearts and our lives, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.